Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. Welcome to the penultimate episode. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher, but right now, I'm on break. Though, the new semester is coming, and the dread is starting to set in. You know what, though? I'm on break right now. I don't have to go to work today, and I don't have to go to work tomorrow. We're not going to worry about it right now. Last episode was the final poet to be examined by this podcast. Today is the final short story. This is one of the very first short stories I ever taught, and it's a great one. Everyday Use by the incredible Alice Walker. I love this one because I love the message, and I love the way Walker builds the story in layers, with little pieces that all fit together into one grand movement, like a symphony. Like a quilt, really. This story for me is a prime example of how Edgar Allan Poe saw the ideal short story as one in which every single aspect, every element, every word even, helped to create the feeling the author wanted to create. This one does that, and in a really interesting way, because the central idea here is a conflict between two things. So there are basically two feelings the author wants to create, and they're in opposition. And that's interesting. There's one other reason I love this story. Because it has a happy ending. Do you know how few pieces of great literature have happy endings? Well, don't say none of them, because here we are. I recommend getting a copy of the text, which can be found through a link I've put in the episode notes, and reading it along with me. That will be even more helpful when we go back through and look at the language. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an editable copy of this piece, but I recommend printing and then writing on the document, or at least getting yourself a program that will let you add annotations to a PDF, which I did find, and I will link in the episode notes. But first, let's just read and enjoy. Ready? Here we go. Everyday Use by Alice Walker I will wait for her in the yard that Maggie and I made so clean and wavy yesterday afternoon. A yard like this is more comfortable than most people know. It is not just a yard. It is like an extended living room. When the hard clay is swept clean as a floor and the fine sand around the edges lined with tiny irregular grooves, Anyone can come and sit and look up into the elm tree and wait for the breezes that never come inside the house. Maggie will be nervous until after her sister goes. She will stand hopelessly in corners, homely, and ashamed of the burn scars down her arms and legs, eyeing her sister with a mixture of envy and awe. She thinks her sister has held life always in the palm of one hand, that no is a word the world never learned to say to her. You've no doubt seen those TV shows where the child who has made it is confronted, as a surprise, by her own mother and father, tottering in weakly from backstage. A pleasant surprise, of course. What would they do if parent and child came on the show only to curse out and insult each other? On TV, mother and child embrace and smile into each other's faces. Sometimes the mother and father weep. The child wraps them in her arms and leans across the table to tell how she would not have made it without their help. 
I have seen these programs. Sometimes I dream a dream in which Dee and I are suddenly brought together on a TV program of this sort. Out of a dark and soft-seated limousine, I am ushered into a bright room filled with many people. There I meet a smiling, gray, sporty man like Johnny Carson, who shakes my hand and tells me what a fine girl I have. Then we are on the stage, and Dee is embracing me with tears in her eyes. She pins on my dress a large orchid, even though she has told me once that she thinks orchids are tacky flowers. In real life, I am a large, big-boned woman with rough, man-working hands. In the winter, I wear flannel nightgowns to bed and overalls during the day. I can kill and clean a hog as mercilessly as a man. My fat keeps me hot in zero weather. I can work outside all day, breaking ice to get water for washing. I can eat pork liver cooked over the open fire minutes after it comes steaming from the hog. One winter, I knocked a bull calf straight in the brain between the eyes with a sledgehammer and had the meat hung up to chill before nightfall. But of course, all this does not show on television. I am the way my daughter would want me to be. A hundred pounds lighter, my skin like an uncooked barley pancake. My hair glistens in the hot, bright lights. Johnny Carson has much to do to keep up with my quick and witty tongue. But that is a mistake, I know even before I wake up. Whoever knew a Johnson with a quick tongue? Who can even imagine me looking a strange white man in the eye? It seems to me I have talked to them always, with one foot raised in flight, with my head turned in whichever way is farthest from them. D, though, she would always look anyone in the eye. Hesitation was no part of her nature. How do I look, Mama? Maggie says showing just enough of her thin body enveloped in pink skirt and red blouse for me to know she's there, almost hidden by the door. Come out into the yard, I say. Have you ever seen a lame animal, perhaps a dog, run over by some careless person rich enough to own a car, sidle up to someone who is ignorant enough to be kind to him? That is the way my Maggie walks. She has been like this, chin on chest, eyes on ground, feet in shuffle, ever since the fire that burned the other house to the ground. Dee is lighter than Maggie, with nicer hair and a fuller figure. She's a woman now, though sometimes I forget. How long ago was it that the other house burned? Ten? Twelve years? Sometimes I can still hear the flames and feel Maggie's arms sticking to me, her hair smoking and her dress falling off her in little black papery flakes. Her eyes seem stretched open, blazed open by the flames reflected in them. And D. I see her standing off under the sweet gum tree she used to dig gum out of 
a look of concentration on her face as she watched the last dingy gray board of the house fall in toward the red-hot brick chimney. Why don't you do a dance around the ashes, I'd wanted to ask her. She had hated the house that much. I used to think she hated Maggie, too. But that was before we raised money, the church and me, to send her to Augusta to school. She used to read to us without pity, forcing words, lies, other folks' habits, whole lives upon us, too, sitting trapped and ignorant underneath her voice. She washed us in a river of make-believe, burned us with a lot of knowledge we didn't necessarily need to know, pressed us to her with the serious way she read to shove us away like dimwits at just the moment we seemed about to understand. Dee wanted nice things. A yellow organdy dress to wear to her graduation from high school, black pumps to match a suit she'd made from an old suit somebody gave me. She was determined to stare down any disaster in her efforts. Her eyelids would not flicker for minutes at a time. Often, I fought off the temptation to shake her. At sixteen, she had a style of her own and knew what style was. I never had an education myself. After second grade, the school was closed down. Don't ask me why. In 1927, colored asked fewer questions than they do now. Sometimes Maggie reads to me. She stumbles along good-naturedly, but can't see well. She knows she is not bright. Like good looks and money, quickness passed her by. She will marry John Thomas, who has mossy teeth in an earnest face. And then I'll be free to sit here and, I guess, just sing church songs to myself. Although I never was a good singer. Never could carry a tune. I was always better at a man's job. I used to love to milk till I was hooked in the side in 49. Cows are soothing and slow and don't bother you unless you try to milk them the wrong way. I have deliberately turned my back on the house. It is three rooms, just like the one that burned, except the roof is tin. They don't make shingle roofs anymore. There are no real windows, just some holes cut in the sides, like the portholes in a ship, but not round and not square, with rawhide holding the shutters up on the outside. This house is in a pasture too, like the other one. No doubt when Dee sees it, she will want to tear it down. She wrote me once that no matter where we choose to live, she will manage to come see us. But she will never bring her friends. Maggie and I thought about this, and Maggie asked me, Mama, when did Dee ever have any friends? She had a few. Furtive boys in pink shirts hanging about on wash day after school. Nervous girls who never laughed. Impressed with her, they worshipped the well-turned phrase, the cute shape, the scalding humor that erupted like bubbles in lie. She read to them. When she was courting Jimmy T., she didn't have much time to pay to us, but turned all her fault-finding power on him. 
He flew to marry a cheap city girl from a family of ignorant, flashy people. She hardly had time to recompose herself. When she comes, I will meet... But there they are! Maggie attempts to make a dash for the house in her shuffling way, but I stay her with my hand. Come back here, I say. And she stops and tries to dig a well in the sand with her toe. It is hard to see them clearly through the strong sun. But even the first glimpse of leg out of the car tells me it is D. Her feet were always neat-looking, as if God himself had shaped them with a certain style. From the other side of the car comes a short, stocky man. Hair is all over his head a foot long, and hanging from his chin like a kinky mule tail. I hear Maggie suck in her breath, <clears throat> is what it sounds like. Like when you see the wriggling end of a snake just in front of your foot on the road. <clears throat> D next. A dress down to the ground in this hot weather. A dress so loud it hurts my eyes. There are yellows and oranges enough to throw back the light of the sun. I feel my whole face warming from the heat waves it throws out. Earrings gold, too, and hanging down to her shoulders. Bracelets dangling and making noises when she moves her arm up to shake the folds of the dress out of her armpits. The dress is loose and flows, and as she walks closer, I like it. I hear Maggie go, (gasps) again. It is her sister's hair. It stands straight up, like the wool on a sheep. It is black as night, and around the edges are two long pigtails that rope about like small lizards disappearing behind her ears. Wasuzo Tiano, she says, coming on in that gliding way the dress makes her move. The short, stocky fellow with the hair to his navel is all grinning, and he follows up with, "Assalamu alaikum, my mother and sister. He moves to hug Maggie, but she falls back, right up against the back of my chair. I feel her trembling there, and when I look up, I see the perspiration falling off her chin. Don't get up, says D. Since I am stout, it takes something of a push. You can see me trying to move a second or two before I make it. She turns, showing white heels through her sandals, and goes back to the car. Out she peeks next with a Polaroid. She stoops down quickly and snaps off picture after picture of me sitting there in front of the house with Maggie cowering behind me. She never takes a shot without making sure the house is included. When a cow comes nibbling around the edge of the yard, she snaps it and me and Maggie and the house. Then she puts the Polaroid in the back seat of the car and comes up and kisses me on the forehead. Meanwhile, Assalamu alaikum is going through motions with Maggie's hand. Maggie's hand is as limp as a fish and probably as cold, despite the sweat, and she keeps trying to pull it back. It looks like Assalamu alaikum wants to shake hands, but wants to do it fancy. Or maybe he don't know how people shake hands. Anyhow, he soon gives up on Maggie. Well, I say, D. No, Mama, she says. Not D. 
Wangaro Liwanika Kimanjo. What happened to D? I wanted to know. She's dead, Wangaro said. I couldn't bear it any longer, being named after the people who oppress me. You know as well as me you was named after your Aunt Dicey, I said. Dicey is my sister. She named D. We called her Big D after D was born. But who was she named after? asked Wangaro. I guess after Grandma D, I said. And who was she named after? asked Wangaro. Her mother, I said, and saw Wangaro was getting tired. That's about as far back as I can trace it, I said. Though, in fact, I probably could have carried it back beyond the Civil War through the branches. Well, said Assalamu alaikum, there you are, <clears throat> I heard Maggie say. There I was not, I said, before Dicey cropped up in our family, so why should I try to trace it that far back? He just stood there grinning, looking down on me like somebody inspecting a Model A car. Every once in a while, he and Wangaro sent eye signals over my head. How do you pronounce this name? I asked. You don't have to call me by it if you don't want to, said Wangaro. Why shouldn't I? I asked. If that's what you want us to call you, we'll call you. I know it might sound awkward at first, said Wangaro. I'll get used to it, I said. Ream it out again. Well, soon we got the name out of the way. Assalamu alaikum had a name twice as long and three times as hard. After I tripped over it two or three times, he just told me to call him Hakim a barber. I wanted to ask him, was he a barber? But I didn't really think he was, so I didn't ask. You must belong to those beef cattle peoples down the road, I said. They said assalamu alaikum when they met you too, but they didn't shake hands. Always too busy, feeding the cattle, fixing the fences, putting up salt lick shelters, throwing down hay. When the white folks poisoned some of the herd, the men stayed up all night with rifles in their hands. I walked a mile and a half just to see the sight. Hakim Barber said, I accept some of their doctrines, but farming and raising cattle is not my style. They didn't tell me, and I didn't ask, whether Wangaro D. had really gone and married him. We sat down to eat, and right away he said he didn't eat collards, and pork was unclean. Wangaro, though, went on through the chitlins and cornbread, the greens and everything else. She talked a blue streak over the sweet potatoes. Everything delighted her. Even the fact that we still used the benches her daddy made for the table when we couldn't afford to buy chairs. Oh, mama, she cried, then turned to Hakima Barber. I never knew how lovely these benches are. You can feel the rump prints, she said, running her hands underneath her and along the bench. Then she gave a sigh and her hand closed over Grandma D's butter dish. That's it, she said. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you if I could have. She jumped up from the table and went over in the corner where the churn stood, the milk in it clabber by now. She looked at the churn and looked at it. This churn top is what I need, she said. Didn't Uncle Buddy whittle it out of a tree you all used to have? Yes, I said. 
Uh-huh, she said happily. And I want the dasher, too. Uncle Buddy whittle that, too? asked the barber. D. Wangero looked up at me. Aunt D.'s first husband whittled the dash, said Maggie, so low you almost couldn't hear her. His name was Henry, but they called him Stash. Maggie's brain is like an elephant's, Wangero said, laughing. I can use the churn top as a centerpiece for the alcove table, she said, sliding a plate over the churn, and I'll think of something artistic to do with the dasher. When she finished wrapping the dasher, the handle stuck out. I took it for a moment in my hands. You didn't even have to look close to see where hands pushing the dasher up and down to make butter had left a kind of sink in the wood. In fact, there were a lot of small sinks. You could see where thumbs and fingers had sunk into the wood. It was beautiful light yellow wood from a tree that grew in the yard where Big D and Stash had lived. After dinner, D. Wangero went to the trunk at the foot of my bed and started rifling through it. Maggie hung back in the kitchen over the dishpan. Out came Wangero with two quilts. They had been pieced by Grandma D., and then Big D. and me had hung them on the quilt frames on the front porch and quilted them. One was in the Lone Star pattern. The other was Walk Around the Mountain. In both of them were scraps of dresses Grandma D. had worn fifty and more years ago, bits and pieces of Grandpa Gerald's paisley shirts, and one teeny faded blue piece about the size of a penny matchbox that was from great-grandpa Ezra's uniform that he wore in the Civil War. Mama, Wangero said, sweet as a bird, can I have these old quilts? I heard something fall in the kitchen, and a minute later the kitchen door slammed. Why don't you take one or two of the others, I asked. These old things were just done by me and Big D from some tops your grandma piece before she died. No, said Wangaro, I don't want those. They are stitched around the borders by machine. That'll make them last better, I said. That's not the point, said Wangaro. These are all pieces of dresses Grandma used to wear. She did all this stitching by hand. Imagine! She held the quilts securely in her arms, stroking them. Some of the pieces, like those lavender ones, come from old clothes her mother handed down to her, I said, moving up to touch the quilts. D. Wangero moved back just enough so that I couldn't reach the quilts. They already belonged to her. Imagine, she breathed again, clutching them closely to her bosom. The truth is, I said, I promise to give them quilts to Maggie for when she marries John Thomas. She gasped like a bee had stung her. Maggie can't appreciate these quilts, she said. She'd probably be backward enough to put them to everyday use. I reckon she would, I said. God knows I've been saving them for long enough with nobody using them. I hope she will. I didn't want to bring up how I had offered D. Wangero a quilt 
when she went away to college. Then she had told me they were old-fashioned, out of style. But they're priceless, she was saying now, furiously, for she has a temper. Maggie would put them on the bed, and in five years they'd be in rags. Less than that. She can always make some more, I said. Maggie knows how to quilt. D. Wangero looked at me with hatred. You just will not understand. The point is these quilts. These quilts! Well, I said, stumped, what would you do with them? Hang them, she said, as if that was the only thing you could do with quilts. Maggie, by now, was standing in the door. I could almost hear the sound her feet made as they scraped over each other. She can have them, Mama, she said, like somebody used to never winning anything or having anything reserved for her. I can remember Grandma D without the quilts. I looked at her hard. She had filled her bottom lip with checkerberry snuff, and it gave her face a kind of dopey hangdog look. It was Grandma D and Big D who taught her how to quilt herself. She stood there with her scarred hands hidden in the folds of her skirt. She looked at her sister with something like fear, but she wasn't mad at her. This was Maggie's portion. This was the way she knew God to work. When I looked at her like that, something hit me in the top of my head and ran down to the soles of my feet. Just like when I'm in church and the Spirit of God touches me and I get happy and shout. I did something i never done before. Hugged Maggie to me. Then dragged her on into the room, snatched the quilts out of Miss Wangero's hands and dumped them into Maggie's lap. Maggie just sat there on my bed with her mouth open. Take one or two of the others, I said to Dee. But she turned without a word and went out to Hakim a barber. You just don't understand, she said, as Maggie and I came out to the car. What don't I understand, I wanted to know. Your heritage, she said. And then she turned to Maggie, kissed her, and said, You ought to try to make something out of yourself too, Maggie. It's really a new day for us. But from the way you and Mama still live, you'd never know it. She put on some sunglasses that hid everything above the tip of her nose and chin. Maggie smiled, maybe at the sunglasses, but a real smile, not scared. After we watched the car dust settle, I asked Maggie to bring me a dip of snuff. And then the two of us sat there just enjoying until it was time to go in the house and go to bed. All right. So I immediately want to apply the main message of this story to the reading of the story and to make some point about how we should now make sure we put literature like this to everyday use. 
And on some level that works because when I spend days and weeks analyzing a single piece of literature with my students, and yes, I said weeks, the piece gets worn out. It gets maybe even ruined is a word for what happens to it. But also, in the process of searching carefully through a piece of writing, examining every word, we gain something from it, something practical, with every minute and every hour we spend doing that. So even if the piece is shredded at the end, the value of going through it, of thinking about everything in it, was still collected, was still used, as it should be. Take that, Wangero. Though the danger in all of my fulminating and pondering over literature and all, that sounds so much more like Wangero than it does like Maggie. After all, Dee read to her family, without mercy, which is certainly an accusation that could be made of me, with my students at least, not with my family. So, lest I get too snobby, too full of myself, too contemptuous of those who don't see the world the way that I see it, let me remember that I also don't see the world the way they see it. And their way might be better than mine. Okay, so let's talk about the story. I said in the intro that the story makes use of everything in it, that every element, even every word, helps to create the feeling the author wants to create. So the first question is, what feeling does that author want to create with this story? I think, as I also said earlier, that it is about a conflict between two feelings, between two ideas. These two ideas are represented, of course, by the two sisters. And the point of view narrator is the mother of both of them. Maybe so that we can get a fair depiction of both, because as a mother, she loves both of her daughters and wants to see them both in the best possible way. Even though at the end, she chooses between them, and we find out, we get confirmation that she has not seen them fairly throughout their entire life. As we probably don't. We probably come into this already being on one side or the other. But hopefully, maybe, it makes us question it. So I think we will take that as our guide and try to look at the story from both perspectives. I think, loosely speaking, Dee is the representative of the world of appearances, and Maggie is the representative of the world of use. Now, immediately, we can see that I am oversimplifying this story, because these two characters are not simply avatars of two opposing paradigms. And also, by placing them from the beginning into these two categories, I'm setting up one of them to be the better one. Partly because I've read the story, and Maggie is clearly the better one but also because our society struggles with superficiality and substance in a thousand different ways. And as a teacher who focuses on deep investigation and analysis, clearly I'm on the side of substance, right? Okay, yes, but let me also point out, I met my wife not because she is a brilliant woman with awesome artistic talent and a gloriously kind soul. I met her because she's hot. Actually, I met her because she thought I was hot and she approached me. I responded, because she is hot. I love the spirit of Christmas, though I am an a-religious atheist because I love the spirit of generosity and closeness with family and loved ones. But also, I like the decorations and the twinkly lights. I like getting presents, but I also like admiring the wrapping paper and the ribbons. What I'm saying is, though we tell ourselves that substance is what always truly matters— use instead of appearance. And though that's an important idea to talk about because our society often focuses too much on appearances, the real truth is that both are important. Both are valuable. And this story is not just about those themes. It is also about these characters as people and the relationships within a family. 
But for the sake of analysis, let's talk about the themes. And before I move on completely, let me just add that my wife is still my wife because she is a woman of substance, a brilliant person, an awesome artist, a gloriously kind and generous life partner. Also, she's a total smoke show. Okay, style and substance, let's call it. Right from the get-go, the first paragraph, the first image, the yard. It is dirt. There is no style there. But there is substance, because the yard is useful. It is an extended living room where you can look up into the elm tree and catch a pleasant breeze. And to show, as well, that there can be style even when the materials are lacking, even when the yard is nothing but dirt, we hear about how the clay can be swept clean and wavy lines drawn around the edges to make it look nice. This is what I'm saying about I don't really want to oversimplify these two themes because they're not really separable, not completely. Um, Maggie is the use character, but also she's wearing a red top and a pink skirt, right? I mean, there's, there's attractiveness there. There is prettiness there. There's style. All right, second paragraph, we see that same lack of style from the yard moved into the character, and this is what she represents. Maggie, homely, scarred, shy, ashamed of her appearance, envious and awestruck by her sister, who is here defined as someone the world never learned to say no to, who therefore holds the world in the palm of one hand. At least, that's what Maggie thinks. Whether it is true or not will be explored in the story. Spoiler, it's mostly true, because Dee is pretty. Though, of course, Dee is also a black woman in the United States, so there's no possible way she holds the world in the palm of her hand and never gets no said to her. The world has said no to her in plenty of ways. But Maggie maybe doesn't see those. And so we are encouraged, I think, to see these characters in terms of their relationship with each other, right? In terms of the way each of them sees the other is the way that we're supposed to see them. And that helps to push me into oversimplifying, maybe, because the characters oversimplify each other. And maybe that's true of people all the time. All right, but then we pull back from the reality of this house and family to talk about the fantasy. The parent and child reunited joyfully on television. Isn't it interesting that television is where our narrator draws her ideal of what the situation should be like? That television is how she tries to explain it to us. And surely it works, because yes, we've all seen these shows. Uh, one quick note, that parenthetical rhetorical question Walker asks, writing this story in the early 1970s, a pleasant surprise, of course. What would they do if parent and child came on the show only to curse out and insult each other? What would they do? Why, they'd call it the Jerry Springer Show, and it would be one of the most popular shows in history, of course. But regardless, the scenario described through the lens of the TV camera is a mix of surface appearance and real emotion underneath. The child has made it, we are told, with the phrase in quotation marks, because of course all we're talking about is a person who has the appearance of success, enough to get them a spot on TV. Actual success is much too hard and complicated to define to use as the theme of a family reunion show. The parents are brought out as a surprise, and they totter in weekly to create the maximum contrast with their successful child. The mother and child embrace. They smile into each other's faces, Walker says. Which doesn't immediately seem to describe real happiness in seeing each other. It looks much more like the appearance of 
happiness. Like they're putting on a show for each other. They're smiling in a direction, but they're not necessarily smiling happily. But then there are embraces. There are tears. The child thanks the parents for making it possible for her to succeed. There is real emotion. There is real family connection there. Or, well, it looks like it on television. Now Walker gives us one of the most amazing character descriptions I've ever seen. Another of the most amazing character descriptions follows immediately after, as Walker tells us the story of Dee. And again, there is this contrast and conflict between style and substance, between surface appearance and the gristle and strength underneath the skin. Let me also point out that this story starts with quite a lot of straight exposition, describing the setting, the characters, and going pretty deep into the characters' backstories. It all holds our interest, mainly because Walker is such a goddamn great writer, who phrases things beautifully, who makes sudden surprising references to interesting things, these little explosions of violence or sadness or tragedy. It's remarkable. Like this. Sometimes I dream a dream in which D and I are suddenly brought together on a TV program of this sort. Out of a dark and soft-seated limousine, I am ushered into a bright room filled with many people. There I meet a smiling, gray, sporty man like Johnny Carson, who shakes my hand and tells me what a fine girl I have. Then we are on the stage, and Dee is embracing me with tears in her eyes. She pins on my dress a large orchid, even though she has told me once that she thinks orchids are tacky flowers. So, this is a dream about a television program. There are not many ways we can have less reality in this. And as we will see later, this dream has utterly no reality in it. This mother will not actually have this experience. Johnny Carson will not be shaking her hand and telling her what a fine girl she has, not least because it's Dee we're talking about here. I love the image of the orchid, which Dee gives to her mother in the dream, even though in reality, Dee doesn't like them and thinks they're tacky, right? The appearance is not sufficient. It's not up to par for Dee. It's not up to Dee's standard. That's a nice touch to show the unreality of this fantasy, because obviously the mother likes orchids and she would love to have Dee pin an orchid on her. Also, the tears in Dee's eyes. That's another thing that is not going to show up in reality that is only in this dream for this television program. Now here comes the contrast. In real life, I am a large, big-boned woman with rough, man-working hands. In the winter, I wear flannel nightgowns to bed and overalls during the day. I can kill and clean a hog as mercilessly as a man. My fat keeps me hot in zero weather. I can work outside all day, breaking ice to get water for washing. I can eat pork liver cooked over the open fire minutes after it comes steaming from the hog. One winter, I knocked a bull calf straight in the brain between the eyes with a sledgehammer and had the meat hung up to chill before nightfall. That is hardcore. Look at all the practicality in this, the usefulness of everything she says about herself, and at the same time, the lack of surface beauty. That is not to say, of course, that this woman is not beautiful, but in the descriptions here, provided by the woman herself as the narrator, she intentionally chooses elements that show she does not look like what she is supposed to look like according to the beauty standards of our society. She is large and big-boned. Uh, I also have to note that those two descriptors are only negative in terms of beauty because she is also a woman. Large, big-boned men are generally seen more positively. Much of this passage and the way it shows the mother as unbeautiful is based on gender stereotypes. She has rough, man-working hands. There's one. Like, women can't have rough hands. Like, only men's work is, like, 
sorry, all work that makes your hands rough is men's work. She wears practical clothing rather than attractive clothing. She can kill and clean a hog, which is certainly not a traditional feminine activity, and she emphasizes that she can do it as mercilessly as a man, which is interesting in that it makes mercy a feminine attribute, when it should be a universal one, and also makes it attractive in women, or at least the appearance of it is attractive. As here we are talking about substance, about practicality as opposed to appearance. I love the next one. My fat keeps me hot in zero weather. One of the most definitely unattractive features, according to our society, turned directly into a practical benefit. Then, emphasized by the two cold-resistant examples in the next sentence, she can work outside all day, breaking ice to get a drink of water. This woman has a lot of substance. And yes, pun intended. She's tough. She's strong. She's capable. She gives us another example meant to show she is not squeamish in the pork liver directly from the carcass, and then shows that same lack of squeamishness turned into practicality, because she can slaughter a baby cow, a bull calf, I know, but my point is that she takes the traditional feminine perspective of thinking animals are cute, especially young animals, and she smacks it right between the eyes of the sledgehammer and turns it into food, which is the practical aspect of this example. I am not sure how to read that she does not get a name, that she's never given a name. She names the family, the Johnson family, and of course she names the daughter, she names her sister, she names her mother. She never names herself. Not sure what that means. Maybe it's a lack of surface appearance. Maybe it's that she is only what is on the inside. But that puts her on a specific side in the conflict, and that's not true. This paragraph, if nothing else, should show that she is concerned with appearances, although maybe not with trying to make her appearance be a certain way. And she is proud of the things about herself that are not appearance-based. But still, appearances are certainly on her mind. And then there is how she feels about D, which plays into that as well. At any rate, let's get back to the style. Back to the fantasy, clearly not the reality. But of course, all this does not show on television, she says. I am the way my daughter would want me to be. A hundred pounds lighter, my skin like an uncooked barley pancake. My hair glistens in the hot, bright lights. Johnny Carson has much to do to keep up with my quick and witty tongue. Notice that the style version of her, the imagined one that has all the right appearance, is seen both through the lens of a television show and also through the lens of her daughter's perspective, or at least as she thinks her daughter's perspective would be. I am the way my daughter would want me to be, she says. But this imagined self cannot stand up in this woman's mind. She is too practical, too much substance. The truth overwhelms the fantasy. She says, but that is a mistake I know even before I wake up. Whoever knew a Johnson with a quick tongue? Who can even imagine me looking a strange white man in the eye? It seems to me that I've talked to them always with one foot raised in flight, with my head turned in whichever way is farthest from them. D, though, she would always look anyone in the eye. Hesitation was no part of her nature. So here, where reality breaks into her dream of her reunion with her daughter and the, the, the happy moments that she's creating in her mind, that is broken into by reality, by the reality of race. This is our first clear indication that race is an issue in this setting, in this story. That while this story is mostly about this family, there is no escaping the truth that this is a black family living in the South in the 1970s. 
Uh, I assume the story is set in Georgia because the mother and the church send D to Augusta to school. And if that was out of state, they would have said Augusta, Georgia. And that means that race is an issue. One element that also comes up here is the idea of colorism, the superficial beauty standard that says lighter-skinned women are more attractive than darker-skinned women. Or, well, all people in general. Lighter skin is more attractive than darker skin, says the colorist ideal. The mother thinks D would want her to be lighter-skinned, though her own phrasing of that, skin like an uncooked barley pancake, is not very attractive. And D is later described as lighter than Maggie as part of the contrast in their beauty. Now, because the story takes place in one day on the family farm, and all the characters present are black, the question of race only works in the background, but here we can see it working in the background. And we get one other interesting piece, a comment on D's strength and courage. D would always look anyone in the eye. So another thing working in the background here is the change over generations. The mother is a woman of strength, but she never looks a strange white man in the face. D is a woman of strength who would look anyone in the face. Part of the difference is the time frame, the different worlds and eras in which they grew up. But that's not all of it. Maggie, who grew up alongside D, will never look anyone in the face. Does that make her weak? Walker puts this right in front of us at this point, a clear juxtaposition of the two sisters. Right after we hear that Dee has no hesitation in her nature, we see Maggie hiding, even as she is asking about her clothes. And then this heartbreaking description of her as a dog who has been hit by a car. And back to the idea of small details that add into this, notice the comment that she says, hit by a, some careless person rich enough to own a car. See that the connection of damage done to Maggie with carelessness with money. Interesting. So we find out why Maggie has, has been this way, why she acts this way, ever since the fire that burned the other house to the ground. But at the same time we are hearing about the fire, we are also talking about D, first her appearance and then her attitude. D is lighter than Maggie with nicer hair and a fuller figure. She's a woman now, though sometimes I forget. How long ago was it the other house burned? 10, 12 years? Sometimes I can still hear the flames and feel Maggie's arms sticking to me, her hair smoking and her dress falling off her in little black papery flakes. Her eyes seemed stretched open, blazed open by the flames reflected in them. And D, I see her standing off under the sweet gum tree she used to dig gum out of, a look of concentration on her face as she watched the last dingy gray board of the house fall in toward the red-hot brick chimney. Why don't you do a dance around the ashes, I wanted to ask her. She had hated the house that much. Such a horrible description of Maggie's burns. And meanwhile, D is just watching and hating though it is only the mother's perception that she had been close to dancing around the ashes. Presumably, Dee has been clear about hating the house. She doesn't shy away from criticizing, so she probably voiced that to her family. But in the moment when the house is burning down and her sister is clearly badly injured, is that really what Dee is thinking about? How do we read this presumption by the mother? Is this indicative of Dee's personality, so familiar to her mother and therefore reflected accurately? Or is this the mom lashing out? making assumptions, maybe projecting. This whole story is the mother's perspective of D. Is it really accurate? Like I said, I don't mean to oversimplify. But there is a hint in the opening sentence of the next paragraph. 
I used to think she hated Maggie, too. That was just an assumption of the mother, now discarded, so maybe the moment during the fire is the same. But the description of Dee goes on. But that was before we raised money, the church and me, to send her to Augusta to school. She used to read to us without pity, forcing words, lies, other folks' habits, whole lives upon us too, sitting trapped and ignorant underneath her voice. She washed us in a river of make-believe, burned us with a lot of knowledge that we didn't necessarily need to know, pressed us to her with the serious way she read to shove us away like dimwits at just the moment we seemed about to understand. This sort of hits home for me because I think I do this to my students. And I think it's a good thing for me to do, to read to them, to wash them in a river of make-believe. But obviously, the difference is in two things. First, it is how Dee lacks patience at the end. Right as her mother and sister are about to understand, she shoves them away like dimwits. I hope I don't do that with my students. The second difference is in the way the two victims perceive this practice, perceive their reading. Words, lies, other folks' whole lives forced upon them. They were burned, what an interesting word to use, with a lot of knowledge they didn't need to know. I don't really know if that's the difference between my teaching and Dee's reading, because I don't know if my students feel this way, but this is certainly the key to understanding why Dee's reading to them is not something they want, not something they feel they can benefit from. They don't need it, not necessarily. So, if we've been considering this as style versus substance, practicality versus appearance, now we have something that belongs more properly on the side of style, and which makes a strong argument for the value of it. Art. Literature in the form of fiction. We can probably see the argument that says art is not necessary in day-to-day life, though I would vociferously disagree with that. But that, for me, shows a loss, a lack, in the life of someone who lives purely practically. Art is good. If art is on the, st- on the side of style, of appearances, and not on the side of practicality, then that's something good on the side of style and art and appearances. If Dee is the one offering art to her family, then she is on the good side there. Though again, it's understandable that Maggie and the mom rejected. And it's fascinating to me that Alice Walker would make her characters react that way to her own life's work and still make them sympathetic. And part of the problem is, presumably, Dee's demeanor and how she exposes her family to this stuff. Reading to them without pity is no way to get people to appreciate literature. Okay, fine. I'll stop doing that in class. Maybe. And then we get more of a picture of Dee as a teenager. Dee wanted nice things. A yellow organdy dress to wear to her graduation from high school, black pumps to match a green suit she'd made from an old suit somebody gave me. She was determined to stare down any disaster in her efforts. Her eyelids would not flicker for minutes at a time. Often I fought off the temptation to shake her. At 16, she had a style of her own and knew what style was. So, while the idea of Dee never blinking, strange enough that her mother wanted to shake her, is a bit creepy, otherwise we have mostly complimentary details here. She remade an old suit and made it cool. She graduated from high school, and of course she wanted a nice dress to wear to that event. She was determined, even fierce, and she had a sense of style and an understanding of style. All good stuff. And so this is more of the positive side of appearances. Confidence is one thing that can come from appearance, and that can be lost because of it too, as we see in Maggie. I think a sense of style is positive, especially as it shows individuality, as it does here with D. 
This is echoed later when Dee shows up in her African dress and sounds, frankly, spectacular, at least from the mother's point of view. And again, all of this is from the mother's perspective, and maybe that colors it a little bit. I think it's important that we not ignore the value of appearances while we are focusing on the value of substance and the value of practicality. Both of those are valuable. And I like the practical characters in this much more than the stylish characters. But the debate is not wholly one-sided. Though I will also note that money is an issue here. Dee wants things that cost money, and the family doesn't have it. Does she want them because they cost money? Is this an attempt to differentiate herself from her poor roots? Maybe. That certainly fits as an ironic counterpoint to the second half of the story. Going on, we have another moment when racism comes to the foreground, with the mother explaining why she never got an education, because it was taken away from her by white people. And then we see a little more of the loss suffered when one has no style in one's life. Maggie is missing looks, money, and quickness, all things that give the appearance of quality, but not necessarily the substance. But all three of those appearances have value, because without them, Maggie is stuck. She will marry a nice boy with an earnest face, but mossy teeth. The mother will sing to herself, but not well. Another thing that is attached to femininity and opposed to masculinity, which is practical, in this case, milking cows, which is sometimes dangerous. The next paragraph continues this trend because the description of the house is pretty awful. Tin roof, in the middle of a pasture, no windows, just shapeless holes. Dee will hate it. There's a great comment here, though, which shows something of Dee's misperception of her family, a theme that will come into play later. She says wherever they choose to live, which the mother puts into sarcastic quotes, because, of course, they are too poor to choose to live anywhere. They live where they have to. Dee will visit, but will not bring her friends. Then this dig gets turned around beautifully when Maggie asks, Mama, when did Dee ever have any friends? Oh, burn! Anyway. So this, presumably, is the negative side of style. People don't necessarily like you, though they may admire you. Though also, the problem may, again, just be with D, who is clearly a bitch. Her friends, boys who were furtive, girls who were nervous, were clearly chosen because D could dominate them and because they were impressed by her. But anyone whose scalding humor that erupted like bubbles in lie is one of their admirable traits is not a nice person. Lie burns are no joke, especially paired with words like scalding and erupted. I love that Walker ends this with, she read to them. Again, education, art is used as a weapon. Her fault-finding power is also a weapon, and it drives away her boyfriend. It's interesting here that the gender roles are again reversed because Dee was the one courting Jimmy T. But where elsewhere being feminine is clearly more attractive and less practical, here Dee, the feminine one, the pretty one, is the one pursuing and not pursued. I think there's an idea here that it is not a positive thing to be the shy, demure woman of the supposed ideal during the middle of the 20th century. Not even for a woman. The pursuit of Jimmy T was not a negative, though there's no, there's no idea that he didn't like being pursued or thought D was too forward. The problem clearly was that she tried to critique him and improve him, and that's what drove him to a cheap city girl from an ignorant, flashy family. Really interesting description there, because what does cheap mean here? Or ignorant? City and flashy could certainly represent... But here they are! 
And I like that Walker interrupts her own narrator's thought to present the arrival that we've been waiting for since the first sentence. But jokes aside, it's interesting use of words because cheap is not necessarily a bad thing in the rest of this story. Ignorant as opposed to D's form of education and intelligence and using that, as I said, as a weapon is not necessarily a bad thing. So it's interesting that the mother uses these words to describe this family that she clearly thinks less of. It feels like they're words that she either got from D. This is a description of the girl that D lost Jimmy T to, or it's the mother applying these words in defense of her daughter that this, you know, this cheap hussy stole her daughter's boyfriend. And therefore as her mother, she is going to be on D's side and hate that girl for D's sake. Anyway. Okay. They arrive. And here we shift from exposition to dialogue and interaction between characters. So the story picks up a lot of speed and gets much more interesting. And also I think easier to follow and understand. So I'm going to say less about each individual thing. However, to get the main cultural illusion that Walker is making, we need to get into some context. This story is set in the rural South in the 1970s, and Dee and her boyfriend are part of the Afrocentric Black is Beautiful movement that was happening then in the cities in the U.S. It is not clear to me how much Walker meant to criticize the movement. She clearly criticizes these two characters, especially Dee, as hypocrites. But I certainly don't mean to criticize the ideas represented here by these two characters. And also, I am speaking as someone who had absolutely no personal connection to these ideas. So for me, they lack context that makes them extremely important and meaningful to millions of other people who aren't white men born in the mid-70s. Take this then with a grain of salt, or several of them. All right, Dee's dress and hair, the brightly colored, loose, flowing dress and chunky jewelry, and her afro with small braids around her hairline are all African, or at least Afro-American, styles. Her greeting, Wasuzo Teano, is Ugandan and means, I hope you slept well. Her name, Wangero Liwanika Kimanjo, is extremely African-sounding. Her fella, with the hair down to his navel and a beard like a kinky mule tail, which is almost certainly dreadlocks, who greets them with "Assalamu alaikum, my mother and sister, and who the mother then dubs "Assalamu alaikum," which is, of course, an Arabic greeting that means peace be unto you and is associated with Islam. He goes by a long and impossibly difficult name that he shortens for them to Hakim Barber, which is frankly also a pretty long and difficult name. I mean, who shortens their name to five syllables? And what's wrong with just Hakim? It's a good name. The mother's difficulty, and maybe a hint of where Dee gets some of her sarcastic tendencies, comes out when the mother thinks but does not ask if he is actually a barber. When Maggie rejects Hakeem a barber's hug, he tries to go for a handshake, but as the mother puts it, he wants to do it fancy. Later he calls pork unclean, and when the mother says he must be part of those beef cattle people down the road, he says he accepts some of their doctrines, but not their lifestyle. This little nugget is two things. One, it shows the spread of the black Muslim movement of the 60s and 70s, made most famous by Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam and by Malcolm X, into rural areas, as the beef cattle people down the road are probably black Muslims, raising beef because they would not eat pork, saying assalamu alaikum when they met you but not shaking hands. And there's an interesting moment in there when the mother remembers a time when the white folks poisoned some of the herd and the Muslim men carried guns, which the mother walked a mile and a half just to see. 
a local reiteration of the times where peaceful black people were attacked by whites and were somehow outrageous when they took up arms to defend themselves, which is something that was so unusual that it becomes almost a tourist attraction that the mother has to go walk just to see the, the novelty of black men holding weapons. And then two, this shows how shallow is the adoption of these ideas for these two, particularly when D, Wangero, eats the pork her mother prepared. The same shallowness is clearly on display when Wangero, D, talks about her name. She tells her mother that she changed her name because she didn't want to be named after her oppressors. This is Malcolm X's argument for using only X as his last name. Malcolm X pointed out, correctly, that his ancestral family name was lost when his ancestors were kidnapped from Africa and sold into slavery. Most families descended from slaves have the names of the slaves' owners. Wangara, however, makes the mistake of talking about her given first name, Dicey, which might at some point come from a slave owner giving the name to a slave, but in the immediate history of her family is clearly a family name that came to her from her aunt, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother, who were all named D. The mother gives up after only three generations of women in the family with the same name, but says she could trace it back to before the Civil War. So the point is, while D may be correct if they go far enough back, the name actually has an incredibly strong connection to her family and her heritage for over a century. Perhaps she should not see the name as coming from her oppressors, but rather as representing the women in her family. And that's clearly how the mother feels about it, and she is clearly resentful about this, which it shows in the narration by having her do the name in parentheses, the, the D, Wangero, Wangero, D. But Walker does not give Dee the satisfaction of explaining all of this, and so we just see it from the mother's point of view, and it seems extremely foolish, which is the point. So she emphasizes this point, as I was saying, by referring to Dee using both names, one in parentheses, for the next section of the story, as either Dee Wangero or Wangero T, as if we might get confused who she is talking about. Oh, you mean the Wangero that was Dee? Oh, okay, I, didn't, I thought it was the other Wangero. Or as if the mother is not willing to simply give up Dee's name, which is obviously very meaningful to her, if not to her daughter. I also have to point out, though, that Dee tries to excuse her mother from using the name, but the mother insists on learning it properly and using it. The name, though, is a good example of the level of detail, the way that Walker builds up layer upon layer, all pointed at creating the feeling she wants to give the audience with this story. In this case, the feeling of conflict and resentment from the mother. Specifically, I think she wants us to feel what the mother feels at the end of the story. Part of why the mother is the point of view character. Just look at the word choice here when D arrives. As soon as her mother sees her foot, she knows it's D. Because even her feet are perfectly shaped, a piece of art created by God. Here we see the sheer level of admiration that D has received from, it seems like, everyone. From her sister, who looks at her with envy and awe. From her mother, who has given D everything she wants. From her friends in school, who admired her. She is that beautiful and it has made her life that easy and helped to give her the attitude she has now because even her feet but then when maggie sees her and her boyfriend she makes a sound like when you see the tail of a snake in the road in front of you the narrator tells us that sheer level of terror and maybe even disgust seems like a lot and very much the opposite of how the mother is feeling about d right now but then those different perspectives would make sense, wouldn't they? The mother gives things to Dee 
Maggie loses things to D. This conflict of feelings continues as Dee is shining as bright as the sun in her dress and gold earrings with a warm feeling coming off them that the mother can almost feel. But Maggie sucks in her breath again to see Dee's hair, which disappears like a lizard behind her ears. That is not a complimentary simile to use. This goes all the way through the story, these interesting and important diction choices. It's worth noticing when the mother refers to D as D parenthesis Wangero, and when she just calls her Wangero. And then at the end, she is Miss Wangero. All very intentional, all hoping to create the overall feeling of conflict, and also to help show the changes in the mother's perspective that, again, I think are supposed to, you know, we're supposed to mimic the same changes in our perspective about D. Okay, as the scene goes on, we get into the central conflict and the presentation of the theme of the story as hinted at in the title. Dee wants to take things from her mother's house. This is at first puzzling because the first thing she takes is a slew of photographs of her mother and sister using a Polaroid. Ah, another reference that I will soon have to explain to all of my students who will never have seen a Polaroid in their lives. Sigh. All the photos include the house in the background. She doesn't say why, and neither does her mother, who is clearly confused. Because Dee hates this house, hated it with a passion, was glad when the earlier house that was just like it was burned to the ground. Right? The hints are in two facts. One, Dee tries to include the house in every picture, and also includes a cow who comes wandering by. And two, she does this before greeting her mother. She doesn't even hug her mother, only gives her a kiss on the forehead, and apparently doesn't greet Maggie at all. And Maggie is in the photos, but she is cowering behind their mother in the photos. That's not memory photos. I mean, the charitable assumption would be that she wants photos to remember her family by, but that seems not to be the case. But it is not explained. Then, when they sit down to eat, Wangero is enchanted by the benches. Benches which the mother says the father carved for the table. Literally the only reference, by the way, in the entire story to their father. Because the family could not afford chairs. So the implication from earlier that Dee hated growing up poor with poor possessions is now interesting, because suddenly she loves the very things that presumably bothered her when she was younger. She loves the benches because you can feel the rump prints. Meaning, of course, that they are so worn that the wood has taken on the impression of the butts of people sitting in them for years, for decades. Which is cool, but also clearly indicative of poverty. Now, this doesn't have to be negative. Most of us are contemptuous or critical of things as children and adolescents that we understand more and appreciate when we get older. So maybe D has just, you know, learned and changed perspective and everything is sort of better now. But the part of this that should make Dee happy, the connection to her family, is not what she talks about. And of course, this tension rises as we go through the other things that Dee, Wangero, wants. She wants the lid from the butter churn, and the dasher, the stick you move up and down to churn the milk into butter. She has some vague idea that they were handmade by her relatives, and she wants to turn them into decorative knickknacks. She's not even sure what she wants the dasher for, saying only that she will think of something artistic to do with it. The churn top is destined to become a centerpiece for an alcove table, shoved all the way off to the side to be looked at and nothing more. And here we have the crystallization of the theme in this story, as this conflict becomes more intense. Dee wants things that her family uses every day. 
there is cream in the churn when she takes the top and the and the dasher, which they're turning into butter right there in their kitchen. And she wants them supposedly because they represent her family history, but not just her family history, because Walker gives us an interesting detail right as Wangaro brings this up. It's when she puts her hand on Grandma D's butter dish. Now, there is an object that has family history and which has seen everyday use, but she doesn't want that. She wants the churn top because her Uncle Buddy whittled it out of a tree they used to have, and the dasher because it has depressions worn into it from the years of hands that have gripped the wood. Her mother, when she runs her fingers over the dasher, remembers those years, those hands, those people. This is what family heirlooms are supposed to do, connect you to the people in your past, your, your relatives that touched or were around are represented by those objects. But for Wangero, she does not intend to use the objects to touch them, and she hardly knows her family's history around them. But Maggie knows it all, which just earns, earns her an offhanded compliment about her elephantine memory as Dee piles up her plunder. And on top of the pile of plunder are the quilts. And I mean plunder because the word that Walker uses when she when Dee is looking through the, the, the chest in the mother's room is rifled. She's rifling through her things. And all the themes come back. Dee wants them because they are an important part of her family history. History she does not know well and which she doesn't try to learn more about. She wants the quilts that were hand-sewn without use of a machine, even though the machine-sewn quilts would be more useful. But she doesn't want to use them. She wants to display them, to hang them, she says. The quilts were promised to Maggie, who drops the dishes she is washing in the kitchen and then slams the door when Wangero gets out the quilts and says she wants them. And please notice that Maggie is doing the dishes while Wangero is raiding the family heirlooms. But Dee claims ownership as soon as she decides she wants them. Just the wanting is enough in her mind for her to get them, to deserve them. Although also she deserves them more because she has the right idea about them. Really interesting. She is outraged, in fact, that Maggie could be the one to get the quilts, specifically because Maggie will put them to everyday use and they will eventually be destroyed. Though her mother points out that Maggie can simply make more because she knows how to quilt, which clearly Dee does not. Another point on the issue of femininity and beauty here. Dee is the beautiful one, but Maggie has far more of the theoretically feminine qualities, specifically in the area of domestic skills. So are we to take that to mean Maggie is more attractive, a better woman, so to speak? On some level she is because she's a better person. And Dee's self-centered, demanding nature is part of the reason, which fits well with the ideal of a woman as being demure and self-sacrificing, but I refuse to believe Walker is trying to encourage that stereotype. I think this is another way to show us what is attractive about the items Dee wants to take, because they are useful, not decorative. Maggie is useful, and the implication is that Dee is decorative. Feminine or not, the better way to be is Maggie's way. In terms of the story, I like the moment when the mother softens and almost seems ready to give Dee the quilts when Dee is cooing over the family history and the mother comes close and stands beside her and adds to the moment, giving us a genuinely cool detail about the family, that their ancestor actually fought in the Civil War. On the Union side, of course, because the piece of his uniform was blue. 
I love the comment about how the mother offered them to Dee when she went to college, but then they were old-fashioned and out of style. And it's interesting that the mother doesn't want to bring it up. It's like she has this great weapon to use against Dee, but she refuses to use it. Can you see the way that she seems to prefer Dee all the way through? And then, when Maggie comes in looking hangdog, having given up on the quilts because this is how her world works, when Dee wants something, she gets it, and Maggie loses it. When the mother realizes that, it brings us right to the climax and the resolution, the happy ending. When the revelation comes to the mother like God's hand touching her in church, that's how much impact this seems to have. How much of a paradigm shift this is, how much of an important realization this is. And she gives the quilts to Maggie, who deserves them, and Dee has to drive away in a huff. Making that last incredible, ironic comment about how her mother and sister don't know their heritage, when obviously Dee is the one entirely alienated from her own family's history, so much so that she tries to exploit them. This is where I am unsure about Walker's intent to criticize the Black is Beautiful Afrocentric movement, or just these two characters, or maybe any other specific individuals who act the same way. Dee wants the items from her family home for the same reason she dresses and speaks in an Afrocentric way, the same reason she changed her name to Wangero, for appearances. Because in her circle of acquaintances, represented by Hakim Barber, himself something of a dilettante or hypocrite, because he agrees with some of the black Muslim ideals, but doesn't want to do the work that follows along with those ideals, having this family history makes her look cool. And why? Because her family is particularly closely affiliated with her African roots? Is that the point Walker is trying to make about people who wanted to reconnect with her African roots and who adopted African cultural artifacts as part of that? Was she calling the Afrocentric culture of the 70s the equivalent of cultural appropriators? I don't think so. Because Dee doesn't want the items for their connections to Africa, or even definitively black heritage. She wants these items to show off to her friends because these items show something else about her family and her own roots. They are poor. Because Dee grew up poor, and now she is not. Now she is a college-educated, fashionable, shout-out to the enormous 70s sunglasses she puts on at the end, which her mother and sister laugh at, socially conscious, dare I say, woke, woman about town who criticizes her sister for not taking advantage of the new feminist era and the new opportunities for women, which comment still leaves me at odds and ends about this story in terms of its feminist view of gender roles and beauty. But I get the criticism of Dee as an exploiter of her family's roots. That's why she was taking pictures of her mother and sister with the house in the background, because the house is ugly and shabby. And if she shows her friends that this is where she grew up, they will be more impressed with Dee because of what she overcame to become what she is now. Quite the opposite of someone thanking their parents on the Johnny Carson show for helping them become who they are. Dee wants to use her family to show her own shameful roots and make her upward climb that much more impressive. Never mind that it was made possible by her mother and the community through the church, raising the money for her tuition for college. Is it too much to think that she is putting her mother in the pictures so that she can show how she came from this dark-skinned, unattractive, overweight, unfeminine farmer? So her friends can be that much more impressed that she herself is light-skinned and attractive and shapely and feminine? No, I don't think it's too much. So, there it is. At the end of this, we see all the reasons why D sucks. 
and we are glad that the mother has had this revelation that Maggie deserves those quilts, and she gives those quilts to the right daughter. And Dee drives away in a huff, and Maggie and her mother relax and enjoy their quiet life together. It's very nice. So nice, I won't point out that this is, apparently, the first time that the mother has ever hugged Maggie to her. The first time she has ever given something to Maggie instead of Dee. And that, while it's a good choice, it doesn't make up for how Maggie's entire life has gone until now. And I won't point out all the things that says about a mother who chooses the bitchy daughter because she's quick and attractive and so on. I'd rather focus on the title and the question that it raises. First, I like that while everyday use refers to the objects, the quilts, the butter churn, and so on, it also refers to Maggie and to the mother. Because it's not only about the objects that get used every day, and which therefore build up memory and history and meaning, as the butter dasher and the benches bear the literal imprint of the people who use them, all of which is exactly why those objects have value. It is also about the people who create that history by using the objects. Create history both in the objects themselves and the everyday use that makes them matter. The value is entirely in the people and not the objects. The objects are only valuable in that they serve the needs of the people, as the quilts will keep Maggie and her family warm, and that they remind us later of the people who needed them, the people who used them, as when the mother touches the dasher and remembers the people who made it and used it. She's their fingerprints in the dasher. She sees literally the print of their hands in the object that they used. And also when she looks at the quilts and remembers helping to make them with her sister and her mother. Because the question that the story in this theme raises for me is, should heirlooms be saved? Should old things, things that have gained meaning because of their historical associations, be preserved? Or should we use the old quilts until they are nothing but rags. It seems like the story is definitely saying that we should use the objects. But also, Wangaro has a point about the family heirloom quilts being lost. And despite the mother's point that Maggie can make new quilts, again, the people are the ones who create the value and the meaning, which I do agree with, I think it would be sad if Grandma Dee's dresses and Grandpa Gerald's paisley shirts, which is awesome, and especially the piece of great-grandpa Ezra's Civil War uniform, would be lost when the quilts were destroyed through everyday use. Part of me would definitely want to hang those quilts on the wall and keep them, and maybe even pass them down to the next generation. Except there's this thing. See, I used to have a quilt that my great-grandmother made. I never knew her. She died before I was born. I got the quilt after my grandmother died. It was wrapped in plastic and stored on the top shelf of a closet where my grandmother had saved it. I never saw it, never used it, never felt it, never talked to anyone about it. And then when the quilt was given to me, I put it on the top shelf of a closet, wrapped in plastic. Every once in a while, I would look at it. Unfortunately, the quilt got wet and mildewed and was ruined, and I had to throw it away. But even without that, it made me realize, why do I want family heirlooms? Why do I want objects that were once the possessions of my antecedents, my ancestors? And there are only two answers. If the object itself is beautiful or fascinating, then those objects are often worth saving just for their aesthetic value. But the only other reason for me would be if they actually reminded me of my family, if they brought to mind memories that I have of those people, 
and how would I create those memories? Why, with everyday use, familiar, normal, day-to-day living. My memories of my grandmother include watching her try to pick a splinter out of my hand when I was six, remembering her driving her old Volvo into the garage, remembering the food she made for me, which was boring but healthy. Sorry, Nona. Those are the memories that feel the most real, the ones I cherish. The objects I would want to keep would be the ones that reminded me of those times. Any object that doesn't bring those memories, the thoughts and feelings that the mother in the story has when she touches the dasher or the quilts? Who cares? Make it into a centerpiece for the alcove table. Why not? But better yet, use it yourself with people you love. Use it every day and make some new memories. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for the last episode.